All right. Well, I think we've got a very exciting uh, conversation to be had right now. We're going to talk about LPG. Uh, it's a nice room we have here. It's, a, it's, a, it's not the prime room, much like the Panama Canal. All right, you just can't get that prime slot. But uh, you know, this is the best performing sector in shipping going back. To, I hope it uh, was cheaper than the Panama Canal. <laughs> yeah. Good point. Um, LPG shipping has been on fire this year, but it's really been strong since the mid part of 2020. In fact, it was the first, if I recall, it was the first shipping sector that kind of emerged from the depths of the, uh, the, the, the COVID depression. Uh, it made its way up, led every, everybody higher, but uh, it's, it's kind of gotten stronger and stronger as we kind of proceeded through the quarters and years, um, culminating with where we are today, which is a fantastic market. Um, but before I get into the q and I just wanted to uh, introduce the panel. Uh, we have Randy Givens uh, with uh, Navigator Gas formerly at Jeffries, shows up to Navigator, and they end up having their best 12-month run uh, in their history. Uh, Correlation, causation, I don't know. There's something there. Yeah. Uh, and then you have Oystein Kalaklev from um, uh, Avance Gas, uh, formerly Mr. LNG. Now I'm Mr. still. LPG. Still. <laughs> Wears both hats. Yeah. yeah. And then we have uh, uh, Ted Young from Dorian LPG. Uh, if it's irregular, it's good. Uh, so maybe just first question, I'll just toss out to uh, maybe to Oystein to kick it off, and then I uh, would love to hear what uh, Randy and Ted think. But just generally, this market strength that we've seen in LPG, how has this transformed your company? I think it's most evident from the stock price. It's gone from uh, 4 to somewhere around 10, 11. Uh, and during that period of time, we also paid substantial dividends on the way up. So, so I think that's the most evident uh, change. Uh, However, sentiment has also changed a lot because uh, 2022, I think every single analyst was super worried about uh, 2023, maybe with one exception being Peter Hogan in uh, ABG, uh, because the scheduled delivery for the, this year was 46, which is a staggering number. Uh, order book for uh, 24, 25, 26 is 16 ships, so a lot of ships for delivery this year. We were less worried, and I actually we even made our, our Midbuster VLGC special edition in our quarterly report where we went through the five top worries of the analyst and explained why we were less concerned. Uh, of course, one of the reasons was we actually had four ships scheduled for delivery this year. We ended, we, we'll end up taking two. Two of them are slipped quite substantially well into uh, 24. So we have seen slippage at the yards. At the same time, we have seen very healthy export growth. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, the Panama Canal is uh, super clogged. It, it's also the irregularity of the Panama Canal. Uh, waiting time is super volatile, and it's become ex immensely ex expensive to skip the line, which means ton mileage up a lot. Uh, and that's made uh, the, the spot market super tight despite all the uh, expectation that uh, this year would be uh, uh, a terrible freight market and people have been making money. But we've been making money for quite some time now. And, uh, you know, as, as Theodore have uh, evidence with this irregular dividends, which have suddenly become more uh, regular. So, uh, so I think that's the, the main change. Um, yeah, that's a pretty good recap of the last uh, 12, 18 months. Um, you know, how's it changed our company? 
Uh, look, obviously the cash flow has been great, um, but we've also, it's also been incumbent on us as senior management to reinforce the importance, importance of cost discipline and capital discipline um, because look, our, our people are doing a great job, um, but you know, everyone, every department has a little wish list, you know, gee, if we could just buy this software, boy, if we could just buy this for every ship, and like, hang on guys, you know, Capital, capital discipline hasn't changed. What's the return? Why? You know, what's the justification? So, it's a little harder. You feel like the um, the ungenerous parent at times, but um, on the other hand, people get it. Um, you know, in spite of the you know the very uh, favorable backdrop, it's kind of important um, from our perspective to continue to operate the business in the best way possible, um, looking out for our people, looking out for safety and looking out for the long term and, and not making um, investments or bets that, you know, we can't unwind uh, if, uh, you know, there's a rainy day. Yeah, I think the market strength for navigators really provided a lot of optionality, right? When I was in your seat moderating panels, I would always ask the hypothetical question, hey, if you had $100 million, what do you do with it? Um, navigators had that and more, so we've done a lot with it, right? We repaid a lot of debt. Um, we bought back our knock bonds back in December. Um, we've done return of capital through share repurchases. We did 50 million from November, or, or sorry, December through May of this year. An additional 25 million authorized last month. Starting to implement that. We've done dividends, right? We announced a new dividend policy with a fixed dividend plus a, a variable component. Um, we've bought in ships. We did 60% joint venture for five ethylene capable modern ships. And we've done a terminal expansion. Right, we announced that uh, with our partner, Enterprise Products Partners, to expand our ethylene export terminal down in Morgan's Point, just east of Houston. So all five things we've done in the last 12 months, and a lot of that is because we had that, you know, hypothetical 50 to 100 million turn into a reality. Yeah, yeah. So it, clearly, you guys have been very busy, all three of you, uh, and capital returns have been significant. But just maybe if we talk a little bit about the market now in Oyston, you mentioned in, in your your earlier comments that. We had 46 new buildings scheduled to deliver, and that created a bearish theme coming into the year. What's happened? How is it that we've absorbed that many VLGCs? Yeah, first of all, uh, we've said before, we don't think it's going to be 46. We said it's probably going to be somewhere between 35 to max 40 ships for delivery this year because of the slippage. So, of course, that's a substantial number, you know, a lot higher than in previous years. But at the same time, you know, you have export growth, uh, both from U.S. and AG. And if you look at where ships are ballasting today when they're doing a U.S. load, it's, it's gone primarily now to Suez or Cape of Good Hope. People are ballasting around Panama because it's very hard to fix a ship when you don't have a, a fixed schedule. You're not, you're not going to know whether you're going to wait for three days, 13 days, 20 days, and then it's hard to fix a ship with a two-day lake-in. And that means that rather than doing that, you, you, you fix the ship on a Suez ballast, it will take some more time, but at least you know the exact date and you can fix the ship with certainty that you're going to meet that uh, lake-in. Uh, your TCE economics, uh, freight economics, will be somewhat lower because of the longer ballast, because of more fuel consumption. You will save some money on the Panama Canal, but you know, when rates now, the, the, the Baltic one, which is AG to, to, uh, to Japan, is about $110,000. If you look at the Baltic Three, which is Houston to Japan, it's close to $130,000. So what you rather do then is you, you take a longer ballast, and, and um, 
rather your economics will be maybe 110,000 or $105,000, but you have certainty on that, and it's a huge number. And, and suddenly, on one voyage, you can lock in one quarter at $100,000 plus, your cash break even for our part is like $22,000. So we're locking in that return rather than risking it uh, on, on going to Panama. And, and that really made the, the, the freight market super tight. It's been, uh, you know, at times there's been virtually no ships available in the market. And then the rates explode like they did in September. They came back now in early October, but now they are rallying again. Wow. So there's market strength driven by two things around the Panama Canal, the actual wait time and then the rerouting around yeah. the Cape. Yeah, I'd probably add to that as well. Um, you know, I think if you look at 22 versus 23 um, or even 21 versus 22, um, you know, uh, Middle Eastern exports have been really flat for quite a while. And all of a sudden, you know, we jumped from 21 to 22 by 7 million metric tons and it's, and it's running up again this year. 7 million metric tons was roughly equal to what um, Russia exported to the world market. None of it on VLGCs, by the way. So the market readjusted. Um, 7 million metric tons corresponds to roughly you know, tw uh, 28 VLGCs. So as Oystein kind of touched on, a combination of, um, I think, some increased uh, export demand, which is carried on, uh, some slippage in the order book, not to mention um, a bunch of dry dockings, which we in the industry were all aware were happening. Um, you know, plus the, the other factors to which Oystein alluded has really created a very favorable environment for, uh, for, for uh, ship owners. And just to mention, oh, sorry, I, I skip in there, but, you know, if I, you know, I'm an investor myself, but if I were an investor listening to this, I would be a bit worried, okay, what about Panama Canal? That is driving up rates now because it's congested. What happens when Panama Canal goes back to normal? Problem is, Panama Canal was expanded for Neopanamax Neo size in order to facilitate container traffic. Uh, nobody thought that suddenly U.S. would become the biggest LNG and LPG exporter in the world. So it's not really scaled for this. So it, like the Panama Canal congestion is not like a one-off. It's going to be uh, getting actually worse and worse because the U.S. is going to export even more LNG, even more LPG, and you know suddenly you know, this you know, finite capacity will price out, I think, a lot of the VLGCs. Uh, the capacity will be used for uh, container ships, LNG ships, cruise ships, and, 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 and more like commodity shipping companies in, in the VLGC space. They will be priced out of the canal, and, and you will see longer ballasting becoming more a, a common theme. Yeah, that, that answers a lot of the strength around the VLGCs, right? Obviously, the propane arb and uh, Panama Canal congestion. But for us, only a third of our business is LPG uh, and Navigator. We're predominantly a handy size operator, uh, some mid sizes as well. So a lot of it is pet cams, right? Mostly ethylene with that ethylene export terminal I mentioned. 2022, it finally ramped up to kind of nameplate capacity, and it's been running above that throughout 2023. So we've seen a lot of strength there. We're trading ethane, ethylene. We do some propane, propylene. We're also doing butane, butadiene, and ammonia. That's really been a big, strong, um, strong factor for us. We only had about three ships trading ammonia before Russia-Ukraine. It got up to 10. Now we're still at eight. Um, so those vessels used to be a kind of afterthought, okay, yeah, I guess we'll do ammonia if we can't do anything else. But in recent months and quarters, uh, it's been a very strong market for us on the ammonia trade. So that's really pushed up the mid-size and especially the handy size rates as well.
Thanks, Randy. Maybe just on, on that, because historically or typically when we think about big ships pulling up to smaller ships, right, it's just sort of that cascade up when markets are strong. Uh, VLGCs are tight. LPG uh, starts to get shipped on smaller vessels. You guys get sucked into that trade. Yep. Have you been seeing that? Have you guys been pulled into that trade, or is demand so strong for the pet chems? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a combination, right? We're, we're somewhat insulated from these. Clearly, our, our vessels are handiest, especially our never competing against the V. But as you mentioned, the midsize is just kind of the swing, right? So when Vs are earning 110, 20, pick your number, 150,000 a day, that is certainly boosting demand for the midsize ships, especially, you know, US to Europe, uh, Middle East to Europe. And it's also cascading down to the, to the handy sizes. That said, we haven't really moved additional tonnage on LPG, at least at Navigator, but there are certainly more handies moving that. Uh, but a lot of the strength has come from ammonia and ethylene. So there's many factors uh, that are boosting our ships and our average TCE. And a stronger VLGC market is helpful, uh, but it's not because of that. Yep. I guess thinking then about, uh, we, we talked about U.S. export growth uh, for this year. I think through the first nine months of the year, it's something like 20%. Uh, beyond uh, versus last year, uh, so beyond uh, expectations, and has easily sucked in a lot of those those new buildings. Is this a new baseline you think for U.S. exports? Uh, can it be sustained at these levels? And does that then mean this fleet that has delivered this year has been fully absorbed uh, over the long term? What do you think? Well, was it me or Ted? Yeah, Ted, you can take it. Oh, you want me, you want me to take that one? That's great. The four-part question. Wonderful. <clears throat> um, Look, it's always a little um, precarious to call a new new, but um, obviously everything you said is uh, accurate. And you know, going back to your opening comments, look, one of the things that drives this increasing demand for LPG is what a useful product it is. Um, you know, roughly half of it goes into heating and cooking demand around the world, so it's very inelastic. It provides us base demand. We've continued to see that segment of the business grow. And on top of that, um, we've seen um, you know steady growth in the pet chem sector, which uh, VLGCs are also dependent on, uh, both from the propane dehydrogenation perspective, which only takes propane, as well as from the steam cracker perspective, which uh, you know we have to we need the uh, the LPG naphtha arb, arb to be in our favor, uh, and it has been thanks to very high oil prices. So you know if you look uh, forward and you look at the demand for greener fuels. Uh, decarbonization, look, we're part of the solution. You know, we may not be Greta Thunberg's preferred solution, but we actually are um, really contributing to lower greenhouse gas emissions uh, through the product uh, that we transport and increasingly the product that we burn as fuel. So what does that suggest? It suggests over the longer term we continue to have good, good growth prospects. <laughs> Pardon me. Is this the new normal? Um, I'd be foolish to predict that in this forum. But, um, you know, times are certainly good and um, we're, um, you know, we're, we're enjoying it and so are our investors. Yeah, actually, when it comes to you know, heating and cooking, I think actually CO2 is not the most important factor here. It's about uh, air pollution. So, uh, you know, 8 million people die every year because uh, prematurely because of poor air quality. A lot of this is related to cooking, you know, where they use uh, very inefficient fuels, whether it's wood, dung, 
or other biomass and and you know if you replace that with LPG you get the clean burning properties of LPG when you're doing the the cooking and and that uh, has a huge impact on uh, air quality in places so and then it's you know very easy if everybody if you have a barbecue it's it's very easy to transport LPG in contrast to LNG which is a lot more requirement so it's a very easy simple way to roll out better access to energy and clean cooking for people who have not uh, the ability to pay for LNG. Yeah, so maybe just then if we think about the seasonality aspect of, of LPG, because you mentioned, uh, you know, cooking and heating, you know, typically we, when we think about it, and I know Ted in your, in, in your press releases when you report earnings, you talk about the seasonality, how 1Q and 4Q are typically the softest uh, because of the, you know, the, the rise in, you know, consumption, which in complicated way, of, it's a complicated process of effectively ARBs are perhaps impacted. But generally speaking, it seems that seasonality has sort of been thrown out the window. Last year, VLGCs were 100,000, if I recall, in, in December. Right now, rates are pushing higher again after a little brief, a brief amount of, uh, of weakness. How do you think seasonality plays out in the, uh, kind of going forward? Is there still seasonality in, in LPG shipping? Um, you're right. We haven't seen it. It hasn't been as much of a factor probably since oh, 2018, 2019, something like that. Um, and I think part of that is clearly the growth in pet chem demand, but particularly the PDH. Um, you know, and, and also, I suspect part of it also has to do with the maturity of the overall LPG industry. And, you know, maybe there's a little bit of just-in-time inventory management, because historically, and the reason for that lovely verbiage in our press releases brought to you by the people from the SEC, is that, you know, you need to build up your inventories during the southern, uh, during the northern hemisphere summer um, in advance of the winter. And so that's why it, it typically you would see the summer months, uh, if you go way back in time, you know, the VLGC utilization rates between the, 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 the winter and the summer seasons were you know, diametrically opposed. So um, I won't say it's out the window, but it certainly appears to be much less of a factor than it had been historically. Uh, you probably have seasonality on the freight rates because of Panama will always be more clogged yeah, yeah. during the winter season because then there are more mm -hmm. pull to Asia, more ships are, are using the canal, so in the summertime you will have less congestion. So I do think you will see an uh, element of, uh, of the seasonality on the freight rates for sure because of ton mileage. Brent, is there any seasonality that you can talk to on, uh, in, in your business? Uh, certainly not as much. Um, a little bit on ammonia, a little bit on pet cam, but the magnitude compared to propane and VLGCs is, is far less uh, in seasonality. But looking historically at Navigator, 4Q, 1Q are stronger quarters. Uh, a lot of it is operating inefficiencies and ton mile demand expansion. 2Q, 3Q are softer, but counter-seasonally, 3Q, we're not seeing it this year, right? We're seeing, we've already publicly guided that 3Q will be at least as good as 2Q, which was a record. So when you're seeing that strength in 3Q, it, it certainly bodes well for the fourth quarter. Yeah. And you mentioned, uh, you mentioned ammonia. That's increasingly becoming more and more a, uh, a major topic, I guess, across shipping, clearly. Uh, more and more orders are being placed with either ammonia ready or ammonia um, capable. Uh, how do you think the, the, the growth of ammonia consumption will impact the uh, LPG trade or LPG shipping? Yeah, I'll start with the ammonia. Right now, the global ammonia demand is 190 million tons, give or take. The seaborne trade of that is about 10%, right, 18 to 20 million tons. Um, and it's almost entirely used for fertilizer currently. Clearly, when you start using ammonia for a fuel, which it makes a lot of sense if you are carrying ammonia in your hull to run on ammonia. 
when you're talking ammonia-ready VLCC or CAPE size, you know, I think that comes as well, but maybe after for the ammonia carriers. Anyway, the, the real driver of additional ammonia demand will be co-firing coal plants uh, throughout Asia, some in Europe as well. So we see the ammonia market going from, as I mentioned, 190, let's call it a million tons, to add 50, add 100 million tons, pick your number. The vast majority of that will be seaborne demand. So that seaborne trade of ammonia goes from 18 to 20 to 70 to 100. Right, so the multiplier of the seaborne demand is drastically uh, in excess of the global demand for ammonia because it's all seaborne. It's all going to be coming out, especially clean ammonia, right? Blue ammonia, green ammonia, coming out of the U.S. Gulf, coming out of Australia, coming out of the Middle East um, to the end users that are far from those locations. Hmm. Thanks, Randy. Is, out of curiosity, is, uh, ammonia can that be shipped on a VLGC? Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, okay. We actually have two villages for delivery early next year, which can also carry ammonia. And uh, the, we also put in the piping so we can upgrade the engine when MAN has that engine ready so we can burn ammonia as well. So uh, we've taken delivery of two ships this year, which also have the same uh, capability of being able to burn ammonia once we do that upgrade. We just this summer contracted four MGCs. Uh, from China where we uh, can carry ammonia as well as LPG and these are dual fuel uh, so they can burn uh, LPG as well as uh, bunkers oil or very low sulfur oil so so uh, we're also expanding into that we do actually have two 2008 built ships which can carry ammonia I think they never done it uh, but but so in, uh, in total today we are for fleet of 20 ships we have eight ships that can carry ammonia and I do think that this will start gradually on, on smaller type of ships, the medium uh, size gas carriers, and that's why we, we placed the order for four of these ships for delivery, 25, 26, when I think this market will take off. Yeah, I think um, actually, you know, VLGCs right now would be the go-to. 93 vessels that are either on the water or in the order book um, are or could be very easily made ammonia capable. I mean, the, the, the retrofits for most of the existing fleets less than a million dollars per ship um, to, to, you know, the only question is, can you load to 100% or only 85% because ammonia is heavier than uh, LPG? But beyond that, um, you know, our segment is extremely well positioned to participate in the, in, in the, uh, the future of the ammonia trade. And, you know, like <clears throat> Randy said, you know, there's, there's a huge amount of opportunity as it grows from um, just being used for fertilizer to you know, being used in, in, in electricity production, coal-fired uh, power plants and whatnot. Thanks, Ted. And, and, and just kind of on the ammonia uh, stuff, just to kind of close the loop there, uh, Randy, I know you guys at Navigate have talked a lot about ammonia, especially over the past maybe year. Uh, where is it going to come from? Yeah, uh, we are working actively with two projects in Texas, right, for clean ammonia. That's basically taking gray ammonia produced from natural gas and then stripping out the carbon, sequestering it locally, and now you have blue ammonia. And then obviously on the green ammonia side, that is produced from renewable electricity. The scale of that, at least for the next five years, is going to be much smaller than blue ammonia, uh, but that, that will come. So a lot of it will be U.S. Gulf-based. Um, clearly, Australia uh, will be looking at clean ammonia, uh, the Middle East as well, but I think the, the predominant you know, um, production will be based in the U.S. Gulf. And then, and again, maybe sticking with you, Randy, but also uh, Ted or, or Oystein, feel free to uh, cut in. Obviously, U.S. production is up tremendously of LPG. It's driven VLGCs and just the whole LPG market higher. 
uh, one of the questions that we get a lot from investors is, is there a limitation on the U.S. export capacity? We have here all the production, but when you get to the ports and the terminals, is there an ability to continue to move this excess product, which we've been able to do so, so far? Uh, you're, you're right in the thick of it. Certainly, yeah, certainly the case for ethane and ethylene, and that's why our, our partner enterprise has announced a new ethane export terminal in Beaumont. Uh, that's why they, with us, are expanding our ethylene export terminal at Morgan's Point. Uh, so clearly that is the bottleneck, right? If we had more ethane and ethylene export capacity, we would export more. Uh, so that's why it's a coming attraction. That's why we're actively pursuing that, uh, the growth in both of those. I'll let them speak on propane exports. Yeah, yeah I'd say um, it's not something that I spend a lot of time worrying about. Right now we're only operating at 80-ish percent capacity utilization. Um, you know, uh, if, if this industry were predicated upon uh, more export facilities on the West Coast of the United States, we'd have a much bigger problem. Um, you know, the Gulf Coast has been very welcoming to supporting these sorts of facilities. So in addition to, you know, being plenty of land and, and appropriate size port space, um, you know, for, for brand new facilities, you know, we've continued to see nice improvements in de-bottlenecking. Uh, Enterprise just completed a de-bottlenecking. So, you know, they're able to continue to load ships more quickly, um, which without increasing the you know, number of dock slips or anything else. So I'm not worried about it, and, uh, and I see that continuing uh, for, I don't see that as a gating factor for the foreseeable future. <laughs> I mostly agree, so. <laughs> but you know, one, one thing you see is that uh, a lot of these shales resources, they get a higher gas to oil ratio. Uh, so that uh, we have seen for a, a long time, and when you have a higher gas-to-oil ratio, you get more LPG, and that's why I think most analysts have been positively surprised by the export volumes out of the U.S., because uh, there's more uh, gas to, to, to exports, and, and the price in, in the U.S. is you know, ridiculously low compared to the price in Asia, which makes for extremely high arbitrage profits. So this profit's been around $300 lately. So. So uh, that means you can pay a lot to, to ship it to do Asia. So maybe just kind of thinking then as, you know, as, a, as an analyst, and I think you mentioned early on in the conversation about modeling or, or trying to come up with what the right, what's the achieved average that a company can capture. So we, we saw two weeks ago VLGCs hit all-time highs at 150,000. They, they slid back to 100, still a very strong number, and now they're kind of on their way back to 150, it seems. Uh, Ted. Uh, I remember, you know, clearly there's a historical approach of, of, of modeling uh, rate averages where you go back a, uh, a month, right? We try to figure out, okay, 3Q, 3Q earnings, we go back to June, take the June, July, August average. What does an analyst do to try to figure out what the market average is? Do you want us to tell you how to do your work? <laughs> yes. yes, we can't. My answer was when you figure it out, do let me know. I'd love to know. Um, you know, look, um, it's hard. So first of all, a couple things. Um, you know, for all us financial people, you, we think of the Baltic as something approaching a VWAP. It's, it's not. Um, the Baltic is an assessment made by a panel of uh, five ship brokers, um, and I won't denigrate our peers in the ship broking community, but you know, um, you know, assessing what the rate's going to be in five days um, for a VLGC in various ports around the world is hard on a good day um, for anyone. So, you know, it's, it's wildly imprecise. Um, and so trying to look at averages over time, especially when, you know, you know, if you look at our business, you know, we've got, you know, some, some of our ships are obviously on time charter. 
the restaurant spot. And so if you look at the number of spot fixtures that we do in a quarter, you know, I don't know, it might be 15 to 20 um, ultimately. And so your guess, okay, my guess is better than yours because I know where, where they are and I know when they're disporting and everything else. But to try to, you know, give you any firm guidance is uh, is really hard because I the only way I do it is I look at the report I get every week and figure out what's coming in and what's, you know, when the cash is going to be collected. And um, so I don't have a good answer. And, you know, because the nature of the trade is such that, um, you know, depending on, you know, how you're balanced between East and West, um, there, there are different rates there. And also the cadence becomes slightly different, uh, especially if you're going through the Panama Canal, you've got longer times before you can, you know, load again or disport again. And so where I could have said, well, gee, we'd expect to load, you know, this many loadings in, in May and this many loadings in June. Well, last quarter we did this many loadings in May, not this many. And so it kind of screwed up all the numbers. But um, so long, long answer is I don't have an answer. And when you figure it out, do let me know. Yeah, I think one problem is the Baltic index is like for a perfect voyage. So uh, yeah. for Baltic tree, uh, which is used in Chiba, it uh, kind of the index calculates 65 days on that voyage. So that means you go to Panama, you go through immediately both ways, both northbound and southbound, uh, and, and you don't have any waiting time, you know. But in, in real life, you know, you need to put in some cushion when you're fixing a ship. You might do have to do some bunkering, crew change, maybe some repairs. You need to have a question when you get to Lake and so you, you are not ending up too late. So in, in reality, uh, you know, the TCE tends to be lower than the index. The, the Baltic 1 index is more efficient because you don't have any Panama Canal transit on AG Japan. So it gives a better proxy on uh, what earnings sh should be. Uh, if, if you do feel that the earnings are higher in the US, you will ballast uh, pass AG and rather go for US uh, cargo. So they, they are linked together in that sense. Um, uh, what I like with the, the VWAP uh, analogy from, from Ted there is it's volume weighted. So if you look, look at, you know, sometimes analysts forget that you know, there is a relationship between supply and demand, uh, evidenced by Alfred Marshall a, lot, a long time ago in economics. And that means when there are less supply, prices will go up. So in September, the rates exploded. Uh, and the reason why they exploded was the, basically the VGC market was sold out. It was impossible to get any ship. And then rates explode because you, you get to the marginal level where uh, basically a guy with the ship, he captured the whole arbitrage. Um, uh, but and then if you put that into your model, you know, there was a lot less fixtures in September than August. So that also, you know, some people forget sometimes that when rates are low, usually you have a lot of fixtures. When rates are high, you have less fixtures because of this uh, relationship between supply and demand. Yeah. So in short, when rates are 100 plus $140,000 a day, you certainly have to haircut that. No one's getting that. That's why they're 140000 a day. There's no real ship to capture that rate. Um, so do not model that across the fleet. And that's on VLGCs. For handies, we're a lot easier. So for investors, you know, you can model us a lot easier. Don't worry about these guys. Um, for us, for handy sizes, we own... By the way, that's not true that nobody was getting 150. Okay, yeah, yeah. We own 35% of the handy size market. So when the brokers are reporting fixtures, that's mostly our fixtures, right? So we're giving them the rates that they are brokering, whereas in the Vs, you're kind of taking that rate, whatever they're throwing out there. So the, the handy size rates that you see, we are actually earning. Okay. No, thanks, Randy. I think maybe just one, one sort of final one for me, and maybe we can, if we have time, we can get a question from the audience or two. Uh, the cash is coming in in a big way. 
it has been for some time. Uh, it looks like it's going to continue. Uh, how, how are you guys viewing uh, use of capital uh, going forward? Uh, Ted? Um, you know, look, it's, uh, um, my answer will not be as entertaining as Oystein's. Well, I'm just going to warn you. Um, but uh, look, obviously, it's time to reward investors. Uh, we've been doing that. But this business has, you know, cash needs for the future. We've been pretty clear about the fact that we do need to renew our fleet. Um, we do see growth opportunities. So striking that balance is important. But clearly, in this rate environment, um, you're fortunate enough to be able to sort of have your cake and, and, and eat the potential cake as well. Um, you know, the trick will be, you know, as this market develops and seeing what happens. But for the time being, um, with rates in, 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 in this kind of stratosphere, um, we think we can serve two masters, i.e. Um, immediate returns to investors and still maintain the long-term integrity of our fleet. Yeah, uh, for us, it's quite simple. It's dividends. Uh, we've been ramping up dividends from 20 cents to 50 cents. We've been paying now the last three quarters, which gives you a running yield of about 20%, which is not too bad, especially given the fact that earnings are also moving upwards. Um, then we've done some renewal of the fleet, uh, more opportunistically with these four MGCs we ordered this summer. Basically, the only reason was why that, uh, you know, we felt in the new building prices we were able to get there was very attractive. We paid 61.5 million for each of these ships. A similar ship has been contracted in Korea for 70.5 million dollars with a later delivery date. So I think, you know, we, we saw money on the table and then we jump on it. And at the same time, we've been selling ships. We sold three ships last year, 2008-9 vintage. We sold one ship this year, 2008 vintage. So that sale is pending for delivery of that ship uh, in Q4 or early Q1. Price was $60 million, it's a 2008 built ship. Avance bought that ship in 2010 for $70 million. So it means by, we've been trading this for close to 14 years and we only depreciated it $10 million from where we bought the ship from. So uh, I think uh, we're still disciplined enough to sell ships. Second hand values are very good. We have just one ship left of the 2008 vintage, and then the rest of our ships are 215 Eco, and then the 2022-2024 uh, fuel uh, Viljesis, and then the new MGC. So we're renewing the fleet, and we have the youngest fleet then of the, the listed companies by, by you know, getting rid of the older, more thirsty ships. Yeah, I guess I'll finish how we started, right? Uh, at Navigator, we're doing the same five things we did over the last year and the next year, right? We are not looking at new builds, but we are looking at secondhand acquisitions. Uh, we're looking, we will return capital via dividends. We will continue to repurchase shares. We will continue to repay debt. Um, and then obviously on the terminal expansion, we have already announced the ethylene expansion that you know we made our third installment today. Um, there are other export facilities that we are looking at investing in as well. So really it's a five-legged approach uh, to what we're doing with our cash. Yeah, maybe I could say, you know, we would have done share repurchases. Problem is that Mr. John Fredericks, only, he owns 77% of the stocks already. So he has a lot of skin in the game. He's the biggest shareholder of Frontline, Golden Ocean Flex, which I'm also running, and then SFL. And, and uh, so rather than buying back stock and, and limiting the float even more, we already have an exemption from Oslo Stock Exchange that you need 25% float. We have 22, 23%. So, so we rather been just pushing dividends instead than, than people can decide whether to reinvest or not. Good. Well, thank you. I think uh, we have 
If anyone has a question from the audience, we can take it. This is. Can you hear me? Yep. Randy, this is probably for you. So this is going to talk about the Russian dark fleet, which keeps getting bigger. According to UK press, it's up to 530 vessels now. You've sold a few ships. Talk about the compliance headache that you have to go through yeah. in that process. No, that, that's very fair. So we have sold four vessels in the last 18 months uh, since January, or 20 months now, what it call you, uh, since January 22. All of them were built from 1998 to 2000, right? So they're all over 20, 22, 23 years of age. Um, we sold our last vessel, our most recent vessel, uh, the Navigator Orion, in May, and we sold it eight times meaning we had seven buyers who failed KYC. Now, we're not selling it directly to Russians, we're not selling it directly to Iranians, but you sell it to a third party and then you find out, oh, they're gonna trade it in Russia or Iran or wherever it may be. So you're like, well, never mind, we cannot sell it to you. So uh, it is certainly a complex environment you know, for us. We have three more vessels that were built in 2000, sister ships to the Orion that we just sold, which they're earning a pretty good rate now, so we are not in a rush to sell them, but if there was an uh, appropriate price to sell, we would do so. But again, it's not as easy when uh, the KYC and the compliance issues are out there. So it is certainly a difficult task to sell an old ship. Yeah, Great. I think we also have the dark fleet in Vilgesis. It's about uh, maybe 12% yeah. of the fleet is uh, doing Iran-China trade. So that's why we haven't seen any scrapping here almost for a decade. The older ships, they go into this captive trade, uh, and uh, if there are a crackdown on this trade, uh, at least 10% of the fleet will disappear in uh, scrapping. So at least we have some pent-up scrapping demand there. What about... Uh, what about So, Ted, um, U.S. propane demand generally is in secular decline. Uh, we've continued to lose share uh, to, to LNG. Um, the only, I don't want to say bright spot because it's not good for our business, but um, we have seen some uptick in petrochemical demand in the Gulf because obviously it's a cheap, it's a cheap source compared to others, although, as Randy could quickly tell you, ethane's cheaper. Um, it depends a little bit on the cracker economics, but, um, you know, if you look at U.S., LPG consumption, it's especially on the ResCom side, it's kind of steadily going down. I won't even say flat to down. It's kind of a steady, steady trickle down. No, I mean, in, in fact, that steady decline has kind of supported it. I got one more question in the back. Yeah, uh, how how uh, do you think uh, that what happened this weekend in the Middle East and the potential for escalation, how could that possibly uh, you know, affect your markets? Of course, it's Iran. It's, uh, Iran is a huge uh, exporter. Uh, they have also shown the export growth the last couple of years. Uh, but, you know, we don't trade that, that uh, kind of volume. Uh, and the ships that trade that kind of volume, they don't trade the international volumes because, as I mentioned, it's a captive trade where you have about, last time I checked, it was about 44 ships involved in this trade, 
where they're doing basically Iranian volume directly to China, uh, and these are all the ships, as I mentioned. So, so it, it, let's say you have a situation where Iran's exports are curtailed. You know, you would free up a lot of ships, but nobody wants to take their fingers on these ships because they are dark. Uh, and they wouldn't pass the KYCs because if you look at the trading pattern of these ships, they have been doing <laughs> something they shouldn't. Uh, and, and you know, the super majors or you know, the reputable trader will never touch those ships. So I think that is you know, the biggest risk of the market right now, that uh, the conflict escalates to, to Iran. But I'm, I'm not too worried about the VLGC market. Uh, uh, you know, we, a lot of people got worried when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine and what's going to happen to the market. But I think a lot of people forgot then that Russia never in, uh, exported anything on a VLGC. They were on the smaller size of parcels, so it hasn't affected the market. If anything, uh, actually Europe has been increasing their uh, import of US LPG driving ton mileage upwards. So uh, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm not too, too worried about it I'm, uh, in terms of the markets. Yeah, I mean, from a macro perspective, Greg, if it continues to drive oil prices higher, that's historically been, uh, as long as it doesn't go too high and start choking off <clears throat> overall demand, historically that's been pretty good for our business. Um, you know, and Okay. Fantastic. Well, thank you. I think it's thank you. I think we're out of time. Okay. We do have one more. Sorry. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Um, I'm just, my question is, um, you, you know, you've got all this infrastructure for transporting fuels and gases and oil in uh, like the MLP structure, particularly in the states, and it seems to me you're kind of rewiring the world at some level with ship transport, and ship transport's always been sort of notoriously cyclical because it lacks, uh, you know, contracts, whether, I don't know if you could call it a take or pay, is there some way to create sort of more certainty of the transport so it replicates uh, the, the longer term certainty of cash flows in the shipping industry in, in any areas at all? Or? You can do a time charter. So we just recently announced a 21 month time charter. So of course it's not super long, but uh, it gives you a predictable cash flow on that ship for that duration. Uh, the other company I'm running is FlexLNG. There we have you know, really took an uh, advantage of the, the time charter market and uh, we fixed all our ships and our first fully open ships is 27, 28, 29 and, and so forth. So, so there is a time charter market and actually quite a substantial part of the fleet is on time charter. Historically, at least in my view, uh, we haven't been paid enough to do those uh, time charters because then you're losing out on the market exposure. Uh, and that's why we've refrained from taking too many ships on time charters because we have been a lot more bullish on the market than the general analyst or, 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 or the willingness to pay for these time charters and, and know that the market is uh, well, uh, we might look at, uh, at kind of hedging our bets with taking more time charters. So that's a way of de-risking uh, the company. Uh, I'd say more fundamentally, the MLP ability of shipping is pretty rough. Um, most of the MLP investors, from our experience, demand really, really long uh, coverage and, like you said, take or pay. That's not totally the um, architecture of our of our contracts. They're, I mean, they're limited outs, but um, you know, and they're close to take or pay. But also, our assets depreciate; pipelines don't. So, there are some fundamental differences. 
Yeah, and, and quickly on ethylene, right, with this new expansion terminal, a lot of the offtake contracts will be five-ish years, five to seven. So a lot of those customers will match the offtake with a shipping charter to match that duration. So we'll see some more time charters in our business for sure. Okay. Very good. All right, Ted, Oystein, Randy, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Omar. Thank you, Omar. Yeah.